We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the pew in front of you there. I want us all to go through this passage together. We started a new sermon series a couple of weeks ago. Um, We're talking about the mission that God has given us. We're talking about reviving the mission and what it means to be an effective church. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how an effective church is a missional church. We talked about how we have to keep the mission that God has given us as our main thing. Uh, Particularly, we talked about being lights in a dark world. Last week, we said that a, um, an effective church is a praying church and how we want to make sure that we are a church of prayer, not just lifting up prayer requests, but being a church that regularly prays for God's will to be done in us. And today, we're going to be looking at how an effective church is a faithful church. An effective church is a faithful church. As we look to the book of Hebrews, as the title, the name of the book might uh, imply, this was a letter that was written to uh, uh, Christians who used to be Jewish in religion. They were Jewish in race, but they used to be Jewish in religion, and now they had converted to Christianity. Now they were uh, Jews who believed in Jesus as being the Messiah, but the problem for them was that they were always looking back to their Uh, the law that God had given them in the Old Testament and always trying to say, well, should we still follow this law and try to follow Christ? Should we kind of do both things that we feel like we're supposed to do both? And they were actually being told from other Jews that they still needed to follow the law. And so primarily this letter is written to show them that all the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the law, the sacrificial system, everything in the Old Testament all pointed and was fulfilled in Christ. And up until this point in in this letter, that has been kind of the summation um, from a bird's eye view of what's been shared. And so now there's this turning point in in the letter that because Christ has fulfilled all of these things that they were trying to do, now they were called as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to do some things to be faithful to him. And I want to look at these together, beginning in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore, again that word means because of all of these things, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Father, 
So we come before your word and think about what it means to be faithful. First of all, Lord, we are so thankful that you are faithful in every way to us. Lord, throughout the centuries, you have revealed your faithfulness time and again. Lord, to this church, you've shown your faithfulness time and again. To us as individuals, you have shown your faithfulness. But God, we know that as people from the very beginning of time, we have not been faithful. And in times that we try to be faithful, it's just a matter of time before it seems like we get back to our old natures. Lord, today, show us and convict us in the areas that we need to be more faithful. Lord, show us from your word what it looks like to be faithful and help us to be convicted enough to step out and to live in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to consider the word success for just a moment. Think about the word success. I think no matter who you talk to in life, every single person to one degree or another wants to be successful. We all are chasing after success, but honestly what that looks like between each person might be a little bit differently. Uh, maybe dependent upon your, the job that you're in, maybe the role that you're in, the thing that you do, the success you're chasing after might be a little bit different. If you're a teacher, if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, if you are a, a realtor, if you are a uh, stay-at-home mom, if you are a pastor, all of these different types of roles would define success maybe a little bit differently. But we're all chasing after success to one degree uh, or another. But I want you to stop and consider this morning what does a successful church look like? What does it mean to be a successful church? Maybe when you think about the word success as a church, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is perhaps having the, the largest attendance. Or maybe having the best buildings, the biggest buildings, the nicest buildings. Perhaps the biggest budget. Maybe the most baptisms. On and on we can think of all these different ways that we might define success. And of course while all of these things are important in different degrees, none of them are really what defines success in God's eyes. In God's eyes, a church's success is ultimately dependent upon a church's faithfulness. Let me say that again. In God's eyes, a church's success is ultimately dependent upon a church's faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, faithful, if you look up the definition, simply means being loyal and steadfast. We're being loyal and steadfast to do what God has commanded us to do. That's what it means to be faithful. We're faithful in obeying his commands. We're faithful in carrying out the work that he's told us to do, and then we leave the results up to him. In fact, that's what we see the apostles modeling in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You may remember as they wrote to the Corinthian church, they were talking about uh, their roles as the leaders over the church in different ways, and here's how the writer described the apostles' role, how they saw it. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, A person should think of us in this way, talking about those apostles, as servants of Christ 
and managers of the mysteries of God. In other words, we're here to serve Christ. We're here to manage the gospel, so to speak. And in verse 2 it says, In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. And so for the apostles, they said, Our role, our job, is to simply be faithful in what God has called us to do. My role as a pastor is to simply be faithful to what God has called me to do. Your role as a Christian, as a church member, is to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And when we think about faithfulness, we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through the end of this section. And we look at these passages, and we're going to find some commands of faithfulness that we have to develop and continue if we want to be effective in what God wants for our lives and for our church. And these commands are very obvious if you look at this section, and we're going to get into them more in just a moment. But you'll notice in verse 22, the words, let us. Verse 23, let us. And verse 24, let us. These are the three commands that we're going to see in this, this section. All three have to do with personal and corporate faithfulness to God. And so you kind of see the direction we're going here, but before we get into that, I want us to look first at verse 19 through 21 and think about why we should be faithful to God. And I think all of this, when you think about being faithful to God, all of this points to the fact that God has been so faithful to us. Look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, his, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now there are some some analogies here that are drawn, some illustrations here that are drawn to point to what Jesus did, and all of this goes back to what these readers would have understood in the Jewish culture. Things like the sanctuary, the curtain, the high priest, uh, our hearts being sprinkled clean, all of this points back to the worship that they used to do in the temple. Now I have a photo that I'm going to try to put up here, Uh, I don't know how well you'll be able to see it, of the temple, Uh, it's pretty dark. But the temple itself had this separate section called the most holy place or the the holy of holies. That's where God dwelled. And there was a huge curtain. You can kind of see it uh, in in the darkness there. You can kind of see it represented. And I apologize for the photo. There really wasn't a good photo that I could use for this. But the curtain separated the people from God. Because God was so holy and is so holy No person on their own could approach God unless it was on God's terms. Now, I want you to think about this. The high priest, only when God said he could, only by the ways God said he could, was the only one who could go behind that curtain and meet with God. And when he did go behind that curtain, he would do things like sprinkle on the mercy seat, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to, be, uh, to offer atonement for the forgiveness of the sins of people. And he would meet with God and he would talk with God and all of those things upon the people's behalf. And now 
that we are in this New Testament era, the Bible says that Jesus tore the curtain in two. From top to bottom, Jesus tore the curtain. And what this is symbolizing is now because of Jesus' death and resurrection, now everybody has access to God. Now we can all go before God. And now that's what this is talking about. Look, verse, look back at the verses here. We have the boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Only the high priest could do that. Now everybody could do that because of the blood of Jesus. He's inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That was, again, the divider between us and God now has been separated because of Jesus' death. And 21 says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now our high priest, that mediator between us and God, is Jesus. Because of what he did for us. And the Bible says our response to what Jesus did for us in verse 22 is this. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near to God. There may be someone in this place today who has never actually ever drawn near to God. Maybe you've been around the things of God. Maybe you've heard the Bible talked about, maybe you've prayed some, but you've never actually been near to God in a close relationship. I want you to know today that you can and should be near to God today, but that only comes through repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. The Bible says that Jesus lived a sinless life that you or I could never live. He suffered and died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. On the third day, he came back to life. And now anyone who turns to him in faith can draw near to God. You can have that ability to approach God. Otherwise, the Bible says, because of your sin, you are and will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. But Jesus provided a different way. And so if you've never drawn near to God, let me encourage you to draw near to him today. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have to continue to draw near to God. And so this command, let us draw near, is the first command of faithfulness in this passage in that we must be faithful in our personal devotion. We must be faithful in our personal devotion. Now when I say the words personal devotion... I want you to think of the first thing that pops into your head. I went to Google uh, this past week and I typed in personal devotion just to see what would come up. And what came up, you could probably imagine, was advice for a personal quiet time. That's what we often call personal devotion, our devotion time. In fact, if you go to Walmart or uh, the bookstore, you will find a personal devotion section in those bookstores because personal devotion has come to be the term that we call prayer, Bible reading. And so these were the steps that it gave on how to begin a personal devotion. And these, by the way, these are good steps. So if you don't have a time with God regularly, let me, let me encourage you to think about these things. Set aside time every day to meet with the Lord. Find a quiet place It said that, you know, if you're around family or friends, you might want to ask for no interruptions during that time. Begin with prayer. Read a passage of Scripture. Reflect on what it says and how you could apply it to your life. 
Consider keeping a journal or singing a hymn to God if you want and end with prayer. Now, let me just say, these are great and important suggestions on how to begin a quiet time, a personal devotion with God. However, personal devotion and drawing near to God is not fully expressed in a personal quiet time. I want you to look at verse 22 at what is also required for drawing near to God. Look at what it says. Let us draw near with what? What does it say? A true heart and full assurance of faith. Now here's another uh, explanation of how our hearts should be. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. In other words, true personal devotion has to do also with the heart. Having a pure heart, a true heart, a sincere heart, all of these things are important because personal devotion is really about a heart that is devoted to God. And so a biblical view of devotion and drawing near to God, it includes study of Scripture and prayer, but it also includes obedience. It also includes personal holiness It also includes love for the Lord. That is what real personal devotion to God looks look like. So think about this. You can't be fully devoted to God without Bible reading and prayer. Okay, can we agree on that? You can't be fully devoted to God without Bible reading and prayer. But it's very possible to read the Bible and to pray without being fully devoted to God. Because true devotion must also include a devoted heart. And so this morning, I want you and and myself, we've got to assess our hearts. And when we talk about being devoted to God, drawing near to God, what does your heart look like? Yeah, you might do the things on the outside that Christians do. You might come to church. You might read your Bible. You might pray. But at the end of the day, are you truly drawing near to God with a pure heart? Do you have true personal devotion to God in that whatever God tells you to do, that you say, yes, God, I'm going to do that. Whatever your word says, I'm going to submit to your word. Because that is what true personal devotion looks like, and we have to learn to be faithful in that. A church can only be effective for God if her members are truly devoted to God. And so, again, we want our church to be effective. We want our church to be devoted. But because our church consists of individual members, it has to start with you. It has to start with me. Are we truly devoted to God? The second command that we see here for faithfulness is that we have to be faithful in our confession of faith. Look at verse 23. He writes, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Now, what is a confession? Think about this for a moment. What is a confession? A confession is like a testimony of something that happened or uh, something that you believe, right? That is a confession. And every person has a confession of faith. 
even if they say they're not people of faith, even if they say they don't believe in God, every single person has a worldview or something they do claim to believe or put faith in. And when you think about our confession of faith as Christians, we know that we have certain things that we have to hold on to and cling to and believe. However, I'm afraid that Christianity as a whole, especially in America, our confession of faith is starting to be skewed in many ways. There is a website called thestateoftheology.com that this organization, they, every two years, they put out a survey on the state of theology in America. The last time they did it was last year in 2022. They're scheduled to do it again next year. But as part of this survey, they survey not only Americans at large, but they also survey people who claim to be Christians, evangelicals, and what they believe about God. And I want to read just three or four statistics here that I found very troubling. And I want you to think about this. Of evangelicals surveyed, and we're talking about people who profess Christ, surveyed. 58% of them agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions. That it didn't matter if you were Christian or Jewish or Muslim, that God accepts the worship of all religions. 48% of evangelicals who responded to this survey said that they believe that God changes over time. That as time goes on, that God progresses in the things that, that he wants for us. 44% of evangelicals said that they believe that Jesus is not God. Now, I'm not even sure really how you could call yourself an evangelical and believe any of these things. There was one more here that troubled me that was 18%, and that percentage was kind of low when you think about it, it's almost one in five, but the fact that one in five believed this next thing just blew my mind. 18% of evangelicals said that they believe the Holy Spirit can tell you to do something that's forbidden in the Bible. Let me read that again. 18% who responded to this, this was last year, of evangelicals said that they believe the Holy Spirit can tell you to do something that's forbidden in the Bible. Now we see the real problem here. The real problem is what we believe or don't believe about this. That's the real problem. Your confession of faith is only as good as it is true and it's only as true as it is biblical. We have to be faithful to unapologetically proclaim and do what God's word says. And we live in a culture that says that this doesn't matter. And unfortunately, we live in a Christian culture that's starting to say this doesn't matter. We have to stand upon our confession of faith and what we believe, the things that God's word says. We have to hold to, and we have to do so, like verse 23 says, without wavering. And that's part of the problem today, is we have a lot of pastors, a lot of church members who waver on the truth, who waver on the confession. But because God is faithful to us, we're called to be faithful to him. Whether our feelings line up with it, whether what we want lines up with it, we have to say, God, I'm setting all that aside because we have to be faithful in our confession of faith. We have to be a church a people who says we're not going to go along with what the culture 
does. We're not going to just try to please everybody. I mean, listen, there are certain things. I understand if we said, hey, if we just kind of maybe let that, that part of the Bible go, we'd have a bigger attendance. If we said, well, that really doesn't matter too much, we might see some things happen like that. But listen, I would rather stand upon the Word of God and be faithful than try to, for all of us to try to tickle people's ears and say, you know, we're, we're just going to do whatever. We have to follow God's Word and be committed to do it. But again, let me come back to this. As a pastor, I'm committed to this. But as church members, all of us together, we all have to be committed to this, to be faithful. Faithful, again, in our personal devotion, faithful in our confession of faith. And so, let me ask you personally, how committed are you to God's Word? Are you willing to follow it no matter the cost? Are you willing to do what God's Word tells you to do, even if it costs you friends, even if it costs you relationships, even if it costs you time or money? Are you willing to do what God has called you and commanded you to do in His Word? We have to hold on to the confession of our faith, because if we don't, we'll be ineffective as a church, because we won't be faithful to the Lord. So to be an effective church, we've seen so far from this passage, we have to be faithful in our personal devotion. We have to be faithful in our confession of faith. But the final command for faithfulness that we see in this passage comes from verse 24 and 25. In this, we must be faithful in our corporate gathering. We must be faithful in our corporate gathering. Look at verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. So here's actually the command that Scripture says. We are to consider one another in provoking love and good works. To want, like, we got to try to move each other to love people and to live for the Lord. That's what, it, that's what we're called to do. But how are we called to do this? Look at what verse 25 says. Not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the command is we're to help each other love and be moved on to, to do good works. And how we do that is by gathering together and encouraging one another. We're to provoke these things in each other by gathering together and encouraging one another. You see, the Bible is clear about this. And we see the New Testament church so committed to practicing this because if you disconnect if i disconnect regularly in gathering with other believers you and i anyone if they disconnect from regularly gathering together we'll see a decline in our faith we'll see a decline in our devotion in our faithfulness to god it will see a decline in our confession of faith all of these things will start to get off base. And you won't notice it quite so much at first. I kind of think about, you know, there are, and I don't know how all the electricity stuff works with this, and Ken could probably tell me later, but there are certain lights at my house I notice that when you turn the switch off, like they go off instantly. 
And then there are other lights that I've noticed when you turn the switch off that it takes like half a second or a second before they actually go off. They kind of like dim out before they go off. Have you all noticed that with certain lights? And again, I don't understand all the electricity behind that, but I can say this, that I think sometimes people are like that second group of lights. When we disconnect from the source of power, like we've talked about the last couple of weeks, at first, we don't see that much of a difference. And we think after maybe a week or two weeks, three weeks, without gathering together with people, we think, well, it doesn't matter that much. But what happens is over time, that light gets dimmer and dimmer. And it gets dimmer quicker than you think it does. Honestly, we all saw the effects of that through COVID. We all saw the effects of what it was like to not be gathered together. I think in a lot of ways that that really hurt Christians spiritually and being set back through that time. But listen, we all know that there are times in our lives that we are tempted to take a step back from corporate gathering. And we think, oh, we'll be fine. You know, it's no big deal. And then the next thing you know, our lives are different than how they used to be. And then we find ourselves in a place like, oh, man, we really need God. So we get back to church. And then we try to brighten up our lives and brighten up our bulbs a little bit. And then we disconnect again. And we think, oh, we really need God. And listen, we are called to be faithful. And we are called to be faithful in gathering together. Because here's the reality. You need it. I need it. We need to be around other believers in this way. And not only that, the Bible tells us this is how we can move one another toward love and good works. Now notice what it doesn't say. It says, not neglecting to gather together. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say to just listen to a sermon. It doesn't say to do a Bible study. It doesn't say to just read a Christian book. It says that we do this by gathering together. Now, I know we live in a day and age when it's so easy to have media at our disposal. And I'm so thankful for Christian media. I'm so thankful for being able to put videos up and to broadcast live streams and and radio broadcasts and all of these things. But the truth is that worshiping online is not gathering. Listening to a podcast is not gathering. Reading a Christian book is not gathering. Reading the Bible on your own is not gathering. We are called to gather together. And let me just go a little bit further to say that I think in some ways, while yes, we are gathered together in this room, I think some of the aspects of gathering that we're called to do, some of the commands here that we're called to do, can't even fully be met in this room together. Because we're to provoke one another toward love and good works. And while we can do that to some degree, it's done even more so in things like Bible studies and Sunday schools and and other gatherings that we have that are closer and we get to know each other better. We are called to gather together. And all of these other things, like again, worship online, radio, say sermon clips, all of these things are supplemental 
and they shouldn't be the main course. Imagine if you heard somebody say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get extra fit by taking some supplements. I mean, mo- most people, if most of us in here maybe have some supplements that we add to, to our diets regularly, and that's great, right? Now imagine they said, but I'm only going to take supplements. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to, to, you know, do normal things that most people would do. I'm just going to take supplements. And you can see how unhealthy that would be. When we try to take things that are supposed to be supplements and make them the main course of our spiritual diet, we're going to be left spiritually unhealthy. We are called to, to gather together corporately, to stay faithful to God's word, to live faithfully for him. And again, we need it. We all need it. Listen, I believe truly that in our lifetimes, you all may agree with me, you may not, but I truly believe in our lifetimes here in America, this is the most difficult time that it's ever been to live as a Christian. I really believe that. And so now more than ever, we need to be provoked to love and good works and to live as God has called us to do. Now more than ever, we need each other. And so think about this for one moment. When you come to church, there's a part of it that's for you. There, trust me, when you leave this place, when I leave this place, I want you and I want me to leave closer to God because of our time spent here. But there's a part of it that you're coming for the person sitting next to you. You all are coming for the people over here. And you all are coming here for the people here in the balcony. You all are coming for the people here and you all are coming for the people there. Because we're all supposed to provoke one another toward love and good works. It's not just about me and what I get out of it. It's about us. It's a corporate thing and that's why we're called to gather together. And Satan tries so many ways to convince us that we don't really need these things. But these three areas are crucial for an effective church to be faithful. In our personal devotion, in our confession of faith, and in our corporate gathering, we have to be faithful in these things. And let me just tell you, when you think about these three ways that we're called to be faithful. I think these are the three areas that oftentimes we're most tempted to be unfaithful in. But consider this for one moment. If you are unfaithful in one of these three areas, just one, consider for a moment how that would affect your faithfulness in the other two. If you're not faithful in your personal devotion, it's going to affect your confession of faith and your corporate gathering. If you're unfaithful in your confession of faith, it's going to affect your personal devotion and your corporate gathering. If you're unfaithful in your corporate gathering, it's going to affect your personal devotion and it will affect your confession of faith. No doubts about it. We are called to be faithful in all these, but you know, I look back at my life and I can say, I can see times where I was tempted and had been unfaithful in one or more of these areas. And I can also see how it impacted the others. And oftentimes when we're unfaithful in one of these areas, the first thing we do is come up with an excuse 
why we're not doing those things. And maybe, you know, because I know I have in the past. Maybe you are the same way. You know, we think of things like work or hobbies or media or friends. These kind of things might be excuses. But then we think about ourselves and, honestly, the convenience of things. Like, we come up, and I think one of the biggest things that I've heard since I've been a pastor is the term family time. Family time. Now, listen, I've got five kids. We've got a big family. Family time's so important to us. But we, let me just say, there's no better place to have your family than in church. <laughs> there's no better place than to have your family than to be worshiping God. I mean, listen, we are called to be faithful to the Lord in a lot of these areas. And when you think about faithfulness, here's how Jesus explained it. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what faithfulness looks like. You can sum up all of these other commands in that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now remember, in, a, in God's eyes, a church's success is ultimately determined by a church's faithfulness. So today, what steps do you need to take in order to be more faithful to God? What sins do you need to confess in order to be more faithful to God? What habits do you need to change in order to be more faithful to God? What things do you need to give up in order to be more faithful to God? Following Jesus, the Bible tells us, always comes with a cost, and we're to count the cost. It will cost us something. Are we willing to lay down those things in order to be faithful to God? Maybe your step of, of coming to the Lord is to be saved or to be baptized or to join the church. Maybe for you today it's something different. But as we've done in this series so far, and we're going to continue to do in this series, I want to invite our church to come forward to pray this morning. And so if you're here today and, and, and willing and able, I want you to come forward. Go ahead and move now. We're going to pray. And here's what I want you to be praying for as you're moving. I want us to be praying for our church to be more faithful. I want us to be praying as individuals for us to be more faithful. And whatever God is laying on your heart, I want you to pray, God, help me to be more faithful in these areas. You all come forward where you are right now. We're going to pray together for God to help us to be more faithful, and we're going to commit these things to him.